play the radio, make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night, the, the, the phone, make sure the kids hear word. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff, Redding, KKRN, Round Mountain, KGOE, Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, WGRN and Palinville, New York, WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week. That's usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. But today, once again, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, which is based at NicoleSandler.com. So, did you watch the third debate? (laughs) Number three is in the history books, and wow, there's a lot to talk about. And thankfully, we've got the right people to talk about it with. As Brad usually does the day after, we are joined by a couple of guests to help us analyze what went on at the third debate. So uh, by way of introduction, sorry, I'm going to steal from my show for a moment. First, we bring you a returning champion. Digby is usually with Brad to recap these debates. Digby. What's that, Leonardo? Who's Nicole Sandler's next guest? Why, it's Digby, of course. Who's Digby? Observe, Leonardo. That's dig for dig and B for B, dig B. And in the other corner, we have another of the original group of great progressive bloggers. You know him as Driftglass. A walk through the Golden Groove Yard, kicking off a silver dollar twin spin with the Drift Glass. When this old world starts getting no, me no, down, no, that's the Drifters. This is Drift Glass. Oh, sorry. Here's Drift Glass with Nicole Sandler. On the broadcast. All right, sorry, we had to get that silliness out of the way. Digby, of course, is the founder of the blog Hullabaloo at digbysblog.blogspot.com. She also writes for Salon.com and is the much-deserved recipient of a Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism. You can find her on Twitter at Digby56. Drift Glass, as I mentioned, another of the uh, founding class, I'll say, of great progressive bloggers. You find him at driftglass.blogspot.com and co-host the Professional Left podcast with his wonderful wife, Blue Gal Fran, who you can usually find writing over at Crooks and Liars. You can also find uh, Drift Glass on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Electrico, because someone else already had Drift Glass on Twitter. They did. They did. <laughs> and I, I as, a, as a liberal, I honor property rights on, uh, on uh, right. Twitter. So. I hate it when that happens, though. So, Mr. <laughs> Electrico, uh, welcome to you both, and thank you for making the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, last night, I, w- I would love your opinions. Overall, the first one we saw was on NBC and NBC stations. The second was on CNN. This third one last night, or Thursday night, was um, uh, put on by ABC News. And as long and plotting as it was, I thought it was actually the best one we've seen so far. You guys? Yeah, I do too. I agree. It was uh, 
for one thing, you didn't have the moderators interrupting every five seconds and telling people to shut up no. and, you know, arguing with them and doing all that. So it was a much more sort of uh, genuine flow of conversation going back there, back and forth, which was, and it was a big group. So it's not like you have to do what CNN and MSNBC did in their debates, which is just, you know, hold tight to these um, you know, time limits. I mean, it, it worked quite well with them actually treating everybody with a certain level of respect, I thought. So to that extent, I thought that they handled the debate better, and I thought that it was actually more substantial than uh, the other debates have been. Fully well. agree. Drift Glass, yeah. any observations? Yeah, and, yeah. Well, there was not that invisible overhang of another debate either before or after that sort of cast a shadow over it. This was everyone. True. Everyone got to be on the stage at the same time one of these people is probably going to be the next president of the United States. And that's a very cool thing. And it's a, it was a good thing to watch. And it was a good thing to le- let them off the leash a little bit, let them really talk. Right. The time constraints didn't seem as, um, st- as, as strict. You know, they let them finish a thought before trying to cut them off. Of course, there were those who insisted on continuing to talk after the time was up. But, you know, that comes with the territory. Um, the other thing I noticed was unlike the first two debates, the moderators didn't seem to uh, be trying to get two of the candidates to go after each other. That was particularly egregious in in the second one, the CNN debate. It was like they were trying to set up a cage fighting match or something. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, and look, I mean, there was there was some, you know, pretty aggressive interaction <laughs> between a few of the candidates, but it was done on their behalf. It wasn't done because they were being set up for it by the, uh, you know, by the, the, the moderators. I don't like that. I mean, I just, I don't really, I don't care what, I don't want to know what the moderators think. Right. I, I don't care about that. And I, and I really exactly. hate the fact that very often, and I've been saying, writing this for years and years, um, that, you know, the, the, the press plays too much of a role in who we pick. It's not their job to pick our candidates for us. <laughs> and I think they often put their thumb on the scale one way or the other, mm-hmm. um, in, uh, particularly in this phase of the campaigns where they are, you know, basically sort of setting up the parameters and creating the narratives around these candidates. I just don't like how much they interfere. So, I thought last night it was done a little bit more subtly than usual. And the fact that they weren't looking for some, you know, I don't know, some ratings moment. Maybe it's better to have it on one of those networks like ABC where it's not quite such a cutthroat competition among the three cable nets. I don't know. And I don't even know. A lot of it has to do with the personalities of the of the moderators. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them are just aggressive people. And the people last night seemed much less so than usual. And and it made for a better debate. It was certainly more pleasant to watch for me. I mean, I enjoyed it more than I have the other two because of that, because it was seemed like a much more um, civilized kind of exchange, right. uh, at least for the most part, than, than it had been in the past. Right. It, they weren't yeah. being set up well, to fight. Yeah. Drift glass. And put, well, putting red ants and black ants in a jar and making them fight <laughs> is a cable news business model. Mm-hmm. And it, that's... That's not productive. It's not helpful to anyone. So, and mm-hmm. the second thing is, if you are dealing with top tier candidates who are political professionals or professionals, they're going to be able to take their own opportunities when they find them or make them when they find them to disagree or agree or grab a line or, or say a line without any help from anyone. If you need help from a moderator to pick a fight when a fight needs to be picked or to set an agenda when an agenda needs to be set, then you are losing. You need to have a clear field with all the people on on it on the level all going after the same goal and let the best person cross the line first. Well, absolutely. And and that's what it's about. All that being said, obviously ABC was not without fault last night. I I thought some of the omissions in questioning were um uh, were interesting. And and I get it. Look, they they spent two and a half hours on this debate which I had enough. <laughs> I was ready after two hours, like, end this thing already, please. Um, and, and there were 10 candidates on the stage. There are still more than 20 allegedly in the race. And just next month, uh, the next debate had the same qualifications, the same qualifying standards to get into it. And already there are 11 who've qualified for next month. Um, uh, what's his name? Tom Steyer has already qualified. So now it'll be split into two nights again. And Tulsi Gabbard apparently just needs one more qualifying poll over 2% to get in. So it might be two nights of six people. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a step backwards, but whatever. The, the most glaring omission that I saw 
was uh, although the candidates brought up Trump, they weren't asked anything about him. And specifically, after this summer of of insanity from the yep. orange Cheeto there, um, they, none, of, no, none of them were asked of their thoughts on impeachment. And I thought that was a glaring omission. Well, I did too. I mean, I, in fact, I was tweeting that out. I'm going, you know, and especially because right now the, the House Democratic Caucus, and I won't, you know, digress too much into this, but they are making a hash of the whole thing. Yep. It's obvious. They are not on message. They don't have a strategy. I mean, it's the worst. A little leadership. I mean, you know, Pelosi's made it clear what she thinks about this, and it's not good. If there are Democrats up there who are uh, in running for president who think otherwise, it would have been nice to hear from them because uh-huh. this is the new leadership, right? I mean, this exactly. one of those people, as Driftglass said, is going to be the, the next uh, presidential candidate and therefore will be the new leader of the Democratic Party. And uh, I would have really liked to have heard from all of them on that issue and uh, because it's, it's live right now. This is something that's happening at this very moment within the Democratic Party, within the House, and it couldn't be more important. And to have that on the national stage, to have the actual somebody actually, you know, articulating the reasons why and talking about it to the country, it seems to me would have been very, very important. I'm so disappointed that they didn't do it, because this was a moment where it could have really made a difference, I think, Absolutely. in the trajectory of impeachment in the House of Representatives. Yeah. Driftglass? Well, and, and there seems to be some weird talking point that's gone around among the uh, uh, consulting class that's, that tells candidates don't mention the Republican Party at all. Hmm. Just, you know, when you, get, when you talk about uh, gun control, talk about uh, leaders in Washington, Talk about the Congress. Don't mention Mitch McConnell by name. Don't mention Donald Trump by name. Don't say, for whatever you do, for God's sakes, don't say, the problem with our politics is the Republican Party, and then proceed from there. And then start at the top and work your way down the, the, criminal, the criminality, the bestiality, the, the monstrousness, the lies. That's all anyone cares about. That everything you want to do is being blocked by this one obstacle that you all are really timid for some reason about talking about. And if we don't talk about that, then all of your lovely plans will never happen. And that just baffles me. It's like they're not running against a party that actually exists. They just, maybe if we just don't talk about Republicans, maybe we just don't mention Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. I get it that nobody but political nerds is going to watch three hours of political debate at this point. This is, (laughs) this is batting practice. Nerd nerd. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so we're all getting off on the details of policy and the, the differentiation between the candidates. And that's great. But none of that's going to happen as long as the 800-pound gorilla in the room goes unaddressed. And I, again, I, I agree with you that it's baffling to me why no one tackles this subject forthrightly and says, let's all talk about how to get rid of this monster and the horrifying party that created him. That's our number one problem. And then right. everything else is number two. Exactly. I mean, we, we are seeing uh, a presidency – Uh, I hate to use the word unraveling because that implies that it was ever raveled in the first place. But still, I mean, coming apart, everything is just insane. And they don't ask the people vying to replace this man about what this president is doing. I I just don't understand it. Um, Do either one of you, did you uh, come up with a winner? Heather Digby Parton, did you think anyone stood out above the others? Well, I thought they, you know... Yes. <laughs> I thought several did actually and I'm not going to pick, you know, put uh-huh. them in order or anything. But okay. I thought I thought that uh I thought that Sanders did very well in his articulation of democratic socialism. Mm-hmm. I thought that was the best I've ever seen him do that and I thought it was in a great uh in a great context of them ask of Jorge Ramos asking him if uh you know about Venezuela and that would you know that keys into something i think that we're going to see all the way through to the general election no matter who the candidate ends up being mm-hmm. uh whether you know that the democrats want to turn america into venezuela and i th- i felt that bernie um very uh, succinctly and and um, you know in in a very articulate way, sort of explained why that was a ridiculous right. and, and concept. I have it. And and actually, that question really made me angry. I thought Jorge Ramos did a, overall a good job of asking really tough questions, but I thought the question posed to Bernie Sanders was 
We can't curse on Brad's show. BS. We'll put it that way. Um, but here, well, let, let, I like it. But I felt that I felt that Bernie handled, handled it, it beautifully. Perfectly. Let's listen to it. Okay, this is the question, uh, and I believe he was the only one asked about Venezuela. Here's here's that question and Bernie's answer. Senator Sanders, one country where many immigrants are arriving from is Venezuela. A recent UN fact-finding mission found that thousands have been disappeared, tortured, and killed by government forces in Venezuela. You admit that Venezuela does not have free elections, but still you refuse to call Nicolás Maduro un dictador, a dictator. Can you explain why? And what are the main differences between your kind of socialism and the one being imposed in Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua? Well, first of all, let me be very clear. Anybody who does what Maduro does is a vicious tyrant. What we need now is international and regional cooperation for free elections in Venezuela so that the people of that country can make and can create their own future. In terms of democratic socialism, to equate what goes on in Venezuela with what I believe is extremely unfair. I'll tell you what I believe in terms of democratic socialism. I agree with what goes on in Canada and in Scandinavia guaranteeing health care to all people as a human right. I believe that the United States should not be the only major country on earth not to provide paid family and medical leave. I believe that every worker in this country deserves a living wage and that we expand the trade union movement. I happen to believe also that what to me democratic socialism means is we deal with an issue we do not discuss enough, Jorge, not in the media and not in Congress. You got three people in America owning more wealth than the bottom half of this country. You got a handful of billionaires controlling what goes on in Wall Street, the insurance companies, and in the media. Maybe, just me, maybe, what we should be doing is creating an economy that works for all of us, not 1%. That's my understanding of democratic socialism. Awesome answer. And and I love Bernie Sanders. and, And Digby, I agree with you. I thought... In terms of substance and what he had to say, Bernie was up there on the top, uh, along with somebody else. But we'll, we'll get it. We'll get to that. The problem is, um, I think Bernie needs to rest before these debates because his yeah. voice was shot. His voice is tough to listen to anyway on a on a day when it's rested and in good shape. He sounded like he was struggling and and. Uh, although the the substance of what he said was good, uh, you know there are those people who complain about everything and <laughs> complain about his his delivery. And uh, you know, I just think he sounded like he needed to rest. Driftglass, what did yeah, you think? Yeah, he, so- he sounded like he like it was November. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and he he'd spent or December or or February. It sounded like he he'd already spent and he already has. He's been. I mean, he's spent. Right. He he is campaigning all the time. So nonstop. I get it. This is you know Obama sounded worse during the That's uh, right. oh, during the the, the end stretch in two thousand eight. You know, so everyone sounds hoarse and exhausted. But he needs to not sound that way. Every yeah. every candidate needs to look in the mirror and and honestly assess what is it that people who don't agree with me or want to snark at me or yep. want to pick at me um, find fault with. Yeah, and, and in Bernie's do. case, it's yep. age and voice. That's I mean, right. there's nothing about his policies that anyone objects to. Well, some people going, do. You, you have to be, I'm sorry, but you have to be rested and you have to be ready to to be right off, you know, off the balls of your feet and into the fight. And that's the one thing he was lacking last night. Yeah, was, I agree. Which is a shallow and silly yeah. and shouldn't matter, but really does. I, I understand. Was there a high point or was there anybody who stood out above the others for you? Um, I, well, I like Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. Uh, she reminds me of my mom. Aww. And, and it, she's extremely good at explaining things. She's very patient and and and, uh, and thoughtful. I thought Pete Buttigieg projects a weird kind of calm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how he does it, but it sort of eases my mind to know that there's sort of someone who talks like me, except slower and younger, <laughs> and lets everyone remind ourselves why we're here. And yes, and, and he's and he's quick. But I thought, I, and I'll be a little bit snarky. I thought the big winner last night. One of them was Barack Obama. Uh-huh. Um, decided maybe using the last successful Democratic president as a pinata uh, was not a good idea, right. or not as good as it could be, and that we're just going to back off that a little bit. Yeah, that was smart, uh, right? 
Yeah, I thought I thought everyone had a pretty good game. I don't think anyone pulled ahead of anyone else uh, markedly. I don't think you'll see a whole bunch of numbers moving around. Um, and everyone was trying to avoid making a catastrophic mistake. I think uh, Julian Castro, who I, I like and admire a great deal, um, really kind of blew it. If this were later in the process, it would count harder against him. But I think he came across as a little bit um, biting at the ankles of Joe mm-hmm. Biden. Mm-hmm. And and that's just, you know, that's silly. The idea is to rise above. The idea is to be someone's equal or better on the stage. Right. And that's how we came across. And I know we can do better. That's the frustrating part. I, I know these people, my favorites, can all do better. And they all did pretty well. So I don't, I don't have any great dissatisfaction with anyone. But it was, except I want to be the guy who gets the golden ticket from Yang. That's, that's, that's <laughs> Me too. Did you go to the website to sign up? Yeah, the Patreon and the PayPal ain't cutting it. So if he could just write me a check, <laughs> tell me about Soros it. Soros money is running out. So if he could just cut us a check, that'd be really that'd be great. I, I hear you, Drift Glass and Dig Beer. Can I just with add, yes. add one thing to uh-huh. that before we move on to the Please. next topic? Yeah. I, I don't want to go look, to pass without mentioning Beto O'Rourke's uh-huh. um, passionate um, uh, <laughs> discussion of guns and racism. I thought they were really great. I mean, he's obviously not going to win statewide office in Texas after having said that, and I think he, that he's made it clear that he's not going to do that, and since he's probably not going to be president, obviously he is, he is uh, thinking of, a, of a, a life beyond all this as an, a, you know, a passionate advocate for certain causes, and I think he did very, very, did something that was very important. He put some real passion and uh, feeling into that um, debate, and he, you know, if you believe in the Overton window, I don't know if you do, uh-huh. but if you do, what he did was set things out. He has now pushed past another of the limitations that we've had for years and years and years on this gun issue by talking about actually, you know, actual confiscation of AR-15s and AK-47s, and the way he did it, I thought was, uh, I, you know, this is a conversation I think millions of people have had in this country. They've done it in other countries. They did it in Australia. I know I've had many conversations about it. I've written about it, and to have a, a presidential candidate say on the national stage, to put that out there and do it in the way that he did it with such incredible, you know, feeling um, and bringing it home to some very specifics, the description that he made of that woman with her kid mm. waiting there and watching her die yeah. because there weren't enough ambulances yep. because the gun carnage was so extreme. To me, um, that was a real highlight. I don't know what it does for Beto's career, but it certainly, I think, puts the Democrats, he's, he's, he's staking out a position out at the edge that I think is important and that a lot of people, um, you know, will thank him for in the long run. He's changed the conversation. That, it's such a great point, Digby, and I, I'm with you 100%. I've not been impressed with Beto O'Rourke in, during this campaign. I was angry that he decided to run for president instead of for Senate. I think the shooting in El Paso affected him in a life-changing way, and I think we saw the results of that at this debate. Here's uh, Beto O'Rourke answering the question uh, about racism. Several recent polls indicate their number one concern is racism. This campus, this state, and this nation are still raw from that racially motivated attack on Latinos in El Paso. Now, we know that the racial divide started long before President Trump and President Obama, but each of you on this stage has said that President Trump has made that divide worse. Congressman O'Rourke, coming to you first, why are you the most qualified candidate to address this divide? You know, I called this out in no uncertain terms on August 3rd and every day since then, and I was talking about it long before then as well. Racism in America is endemic. It is foundational. We can mark the creation of this country not at the 4th of July, 1776, but August 20th, 1619, when the first kidnapped African was brought to this country against his will and in bondage and as a slave, built the greatness and the success and the wealth that neither he nor his descendants would ever be able to fully participate in and enjoy. 
We have to be able to answer this challenge, and it is found in our education system where in Texas, a five-year-old child in kindergarten is five times as likely to be disciplined or suspended or expelled based on the color of their skin. In our healthcare system, where there is a maternal mortality crisis three times as deadly for women of color, or the fact that there's 10 times the wealth in white America than there is in black America, I'm going to follow Sheila Jackson Lee's lead and sign into law a reparations bill that will allow to address this at its foundations. But we will also call out the fact that we have a white supremacist in the White House and he poses a mortal threat to people of color all across this country. I I thought that was a brilliant answer. And of course, when it comes to guns, that's where Beto O'Rourke really shone. Are you proposing taking away their guns and how would this work? I am. If it's a weapon that was designed to kill people on a battlefield... If the high-impact, high-velocity round, when it hits your body, shreds everything inside of your body because it was designed to do that so that you would bleed to death on a battlefield and not be able to get up and kill one of our soldiers. When we see that being used against children, and in Odessa, I met the mother of a 15-year-old girl who was shot by an AR-15, and that mother watched her bleed to death over the course of an hour because so many other people were shot by that AR-15 in Odessa in Midland. There weren't enough ambulances to get to them in time. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against our fellow Americans anymore. I bow in his general direction. I, I just, I, I couldn't have been more proud of that answer, and I'm, I still have goosebumps right now listening to it. Yeah, I agree, and I think that he, he is articulating a part of the, you know, the, look, the Democratic Party has moved way left, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no doubt about it. If you listen to Warren and Sanders, yep. the, their economic argument, um, you know, and everything else is, is, is much further left than we could have ever expected even a decade ago. When Driftglass, you and I were all starting, you know, writing during the, the Bush administration, I mean, yeah. could we have imagined that the Democratic Party would be like this? No, and what he's no. doing, he doesn't concentrate on the economics as much as the others, although that's extremely important to everybody. He's taking on some of the, you know, some, some of the most contentious culture war issues there and, and going at it head on. And having someone in the race at this stage saying those things and getting good response, by the way, it's important that people like it and that, pe- that people show that they like it. The, the applause at the, at the college there where they were having the yep. debate, I think that people absorb that. And he's getting great reviews from people. I mean, whatever he does as a, as a person going forward is kind of irrelevant. He's introduced this kind of strong values-based, you know, just anger um, at, at the fact that we have these issues and that we're not, you know, have not been willing to address them. I mean, I think that's tremendously important. I mean, he's not the only one in the party who's doing that, but he is the one on the presidential stage who, I mean, I think he's in this YOLO phase, right? It's like, you know, he's saying, yeah, uh-huh. I don't know, maybe I'm not probably not going to win. And right. I don't even know if I'm going to be in politics, but I'm going for it. And there's a, that's a very refreshing thing to hear yes. to me anyway. Yeah, he, he, I think Beto O'Rourke uh, was the biggest gainer of the night. I don't say, I don't think he won the debate. Um, I, 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 yeah, I'd have to say Sanders and Warren stood out to me, but I think Beto um, had his moments and and salvaged himself for uh, at least the the next uh, few, you know, to to go forward in the race. Uh, when it, it, was it wasn't quite Bullworth, but it was like a PG <laughs> Disneyfied Bullworth. It was, yeah, it was. Exactly. I have nothing to lose. I might yeah. as well speak yeah. my mind. And and the subtext, I agree with you. Um, and it was and 15 years ago when we were writing about this stuff. You're right. I could not have imagined the Democratic Party coming this far. But what makes me sad is I could easily imagine the Republican Party landing right where it has landed. Oh, God. The oh. trajectory oh, of the yeah. Republican Party was absolutely clear and uh, yep. and obvious to anyone who was watching it. And you know, it's a, it's, they're making a monster machine out of which monsters will come. And one of the, one of the things that I, I, I wish our candidates would take – from the Republican Party, the only thing I wish they would take is go after the media. Don't go yeah. after George Stephanopoulos. The moderators are fine. But I have seen Nancy Pelosi do this, and I've seen Beto do this, which is turn your ire on the person asking the ridiculous, dumb uh, soundbite question. Mm-hmm. And 
what the hell is your malfunction? Why are you asking me something this stupid? Why aren't you camped out on Mitch McConnell's lawn? What what is and and there's so many opportunities for them to do this. And I it's one of those many things I just am baffled that they're timid, they're they're frightened to do this. Right. I want I want to hear one candidate say when they're asked about what their medical uh, what their health care plan will cost. I want to I want to hear them say Mexico will pay for it. <laughs> And, and, and then, just, just right. dare the reporter to, to ask you to a follow-up follow up. Exactly. Uh, Drift Glass is with us and Digby is with us. I'm Nicole Sandler in for Brad Friedman on today's uh, debate number three recap edition of the Bradcast. When we return after a very quick break, we'll we'll look at some of the, the, the negatives, the gaffes, the mistakes, the missteps perhaps. Don't go away. Nicole Sandler in for Brad Friedman on the Bradcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. I've had enough of We're back. I'm Nicole Sandler filling in for Brad Friedman today on the broadcast. He had a family emergency. Hopefully he and Desi will be back soon and everything will be fine. I'm joined by two wonderful icons of the progressive blogosphere, Heather Digby Parton and Drift Glass, who've both been uh, fighting the good fight since really the beginning, since the start of the internet and still going strong. Drift Glass at driftglass.blogspot.com. Digby, of course, at Digby's Hullabaloo, digbysblog.blogspot.com. Of course, you can find them in other places as well. Digby writes for Salon.com. Uh, Driftglass co-hosts the Professional Left podcast with his wife, Blue Gal Fran. And so I'm honored to have both of you here today. One of you mentioned earlier the Julian Castro moment. Julian yeah. Castro, I thought, did really well in the second debate, so much so that I thought he was a potential vice presidential pick. I think he got a little too cocky last night because he went after Biden, which I understand, you know, a, a, the, probably he was the, one of the, the lowest polling people on the stage. He was at the far end of, of the line um, and he wanted to make some noise and he thought the best way to do it might be going after Biden. Here's a little bit of what happened there. You know, I also want to recognize uh, the work that Bernie has done on this. Uh, and of course, uh, we owe a debt of gratitude to President Barack Obama. Uh, of course, I also work for President Obama, uh, Vice President Biden. And I know that the problem with your plan is that it leaves 10 million people uncovered. Now, on the last debate stage in Detroit, you said that wasn't true when Senator Harris brought that up. There was a, a fact check of that, and they said that was true. Uh, you know, I grew up with a grandmother who had type 2 diabetes, and I watched her condition get worse and worse. Uh, but that whole time, she had Medicare. Uh, I want every single American family to have a strong Medicare plan available. If they choose to hold on to strong, solid private health insurance, I believe they should be able to do that. But the difference between what I support and what you support, Vice President Biden, is that you require them to opt in. And I would not require them to opt in. They would automatically be enrolled. They wouldn't have to buy in. That's a big difference because Barack Obama's vision was not to leave 10 million people uncovered. He wanted every single person in this country covered. My plan would do that. Your plan would not. They do not have to buy in. They do not have to buy in. You just said that. You just said that two minutes ago. You just said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. Have to buy in. If she qualifies, are, are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? Are you already what you said just two minutes ago? I mean, I can't believe that you said two minutes ago that they had to buy in, and now you're saying they don't have to buy You're forgetting that. I said anyone I mean, like look, your grandmother who look, has no money. We need she a would, healthcare system you're automatically that automatically enrolled. enrolls people regardless of whether they choose to opt in or not. If you lose your job, for instance, his, his health care plan would not automatically enroll you. You would have to opt in. My health care plan would. That's a big difference. I'm fulfilling, fulfilling the legacy of Barack Obama, and you're not. I'll be surprised to him. Oh, okay. So there were some slams back and forth there. Actually, it would have been successful, in my view, if he had been factually correct 
Um, but but apparently Julian Castro was wrong because I went back and listened to the tape and Joe Biden did say, if you get cancer, you're automatically enrolled. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. That's yep. right. Yeah, he did. Although, let's let's be honest here, you know, Biden's answer <laughs> didn't make sense. You know, throughout was confusing. So <laughs> it's, it's not surprising that uh, someone would misinterpret mm-hmm. what he said. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you're going to go after him for forgetting, which I mean, look, you know, mm-hmm. Castro came in prepared yeah. to hit him with a line about forgetting because we all know what that's about, right? Yep. I mean, that's that's a that's a slam against Biden's age, of course. So he he did it inappropriately, which didn't help him. And I don't think it helped him really in terms of attitude either. Not that I'm criticizing the idea. I think I think it's legitimate, although I'm not sure that's the proper venue for it, to question Biden's, you know, his his abilities here. I mean, I think I think it's fair enough to do that. I felt like Cory Booker after the debate when he said, you know, we're, there's some question about whether or not he can get the ball over the line something like that, I think, you know, look, that's what everybody's thinking. Of course. And, <laughs> you know, so saying it out loud isn't exactly bad. But, you know, I don't, Castro, I think he's, to be honest, I think he is auditioning for Elizabeth Warren's VP slot. Yeah, I think you're <laughs> because right. Because yeah. I think he's saying I'm going to be the attack dog. Right. You know, that's the traditional VP role. Sure. And I think that's, the, to, when I see him doing that, being very aggressive, young Latino from Texas, I could easily see him being chosen um, by someone, and I'm assuming it would. It's most likely it would be someone like Warren right. um, to be the VP. So I, that's what I think that's really about. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, well, and if if he wants to go after Biden on memory, mm-hmm. <laughs> the way to fold, if you'd like to fold that together, yes, then I'd go after him on this fantasy that you're going to find Republicans you can work oh, with. Oh, mm-hmm. I'd say, look, don't you remember the last eight years of the president you served? I mean, That's wasn't right. that a perfect lab experiment in what happens when you try to cooperate and compromise, et cetera? They spent eight years sabotaging you people. They cut your legs out from under, they called you everything but a child of God. And then they, then they nominated and elected the king of the birthers. Don't you remember any of that? <laughs> that's where you can walk away. Exactly. And, and exactly. That is, that's a direct, and that is a direct substantive attack. That this fantasy that we're gonna the fever will break, <laughs> and Joe Biden will do shots with I don't know the ghost of Ronald Reagan, and bipartisanship will return. That's never gonna happen. And someone on that stage needs to say, no, the solution to our problems is getting rid of the Republican Party in Congress. There's no other way around this. And Joe, it, God love him. Uh, he's an affable man. He's Leslie Nope's candidate. I know she's out there pulling for him, but he's not – he's delusional if yes, he thinks you can right. work with Republicans having lived through eight years of sabotage and sedition by these same people. Right. Well, I thought the biggest – I don't even want to call it a gaffe. I thought the biggest travesty of the night uh, came from Joe Biden. Uh, I was expecting gaffes and and missteps and and you know I always say the best thing we can do to let Joe Biden implode is let him speak a lot because he will in- inevitably put his foot deep in his mouth and he did the question it was so stunning and I, and I wish I was showing video here because he was asked the topic was inequality in schools and race and he sort of guffawed at the question, which you can't really hear here. Let me play it and see it just the beginning here and see if you if you hear the 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 snark, the the the, the guffaw. Uh, Mr. Vice President, I want to come to you and talk to you about inequality in schools and race. In a conversation, see, he went. <laughs> it, it, it was very uh, sort of under his breath, but it was. And there was like a smile. It was like he was laughing at the notion, which was disturbing, but not as disturbing as the answer he gave. Um, Everyone's pointing to the fact that in this clip that I'm about to play, he talks about um, putting the record player on for your kids at night. Not, of course, realizing that uh, nobody but the coolest hipsters have actual record players these days. Um, and, And I'm sure he wasn't getting at that. But... What I objected to was his, what appeared to me as white splaining to perhaps black parents 
about how to raise their children, which I thought was disturbing. Here's the rest of that clip. A conversation about how to deal with segregation in schools back in 1975, you told a reporter, I don't feel responsible for the sins of my father and grandfather. I feel responsible for what the situation is today, for the sins of my own generation. And I'll be damned if I feel responsible to pay for what happened 300 years ago. You said that some 40 years ago. But as you stand here tonight, what responsibility do you think that Americans need to take to repair the legacy of slavery in our country? Well, they have to deal with the, the look, there is institutional segregation in what? this country. And from I the think time I got racism, involved, I started okay. dealing with that. Redlining, banks, making sure that we are in a position where, look, we talk about education. I propose that what we take is those very poor schools, the Title I schools, triple the amount of money we spend from 15 to 45 billion a year, give every single teacher a raise to the equal raise of getting out the $60,000 level. What? Number two, make sure that we bring in to help the, student, the, the teachers deal with the problems that come from home. The problems that come from home, we, need, we have one school psychologist for every 1,500 kids in America today. It's crazy. The teachers are, and I'm married to a teacher. My deceased wife is a teacher. They have every problem coming to them. We have to make sure that every single child does, in fact, have three, four, and five-year-olds go to school. School, not daycare. School. We bring social workers into homes and parents to help them deal with how to raise their children. It's not that they don't want to help. They don't, want, they don't know quite what to do. Play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The, the, the phone. Make sure the kids hear words. A kid coming from a very poor school, a, a very poor background, will hear four million words fewer spoken by the time they get there. There's Thank so you, much. We, no, I'm, I'm going to go like the rest of them do. All right. Twice. And I'm going to cut him off because he veers off to another topic there. But seriously? <laughs> and, and to make matters worse, the talking heads afterwards and the Washington Post today say Biden held his own and he he had no major missteps excuse me what did i just hear well that that makes me feel crazy <laughs> because he did not hold his own i mean oh. he was a little bit more coherent in the first hour uh and he went downhill after that oh. that answer was appalling appalling it was it was absolutely appalling because look first of all I, let me just say up front you know i think you know biden's Biden's heart is in the right place. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think he's Donald Trump. Right. But what he was reflecting was a sort of, you know, make America great again for, you know, uh, for the Democratic Party circa 1975, in which they were under the thrall of, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan and the, you know, the, his report on the black family and how that, you know, it was where, where the whole welfare queen thing happened. And that was the be- the genesis of it, where these people they were dependent, and these poor, you know, uh, unfortunate African American people didn't really know how to raise children, <laughs> even though they'd raised most of the kids in the <laughs> South for right. centuries. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, they didn't really know what to do, how to raise kids. They were, you know, stuck in this cycle of poverty, et cetera, et cetera. It was all pretty much their fault. We need to send some people in to what he explicitly said in 2019, just last night was because they didn't know how, how to do it. Yeah. So we're going to send in probably some nice white people, yes, you know, to, to, to show them what to do. Ugh. That was an absolutely appalling answer and shows that really he is just, he does not understand this issue even today. Now, again, I will repeat, I think his heart is in the right place, uh-huh. but he is stuck in the past. He's stuck at a moment, and this is decades ago. It's, we're not even talking about a moment 15 years ago, like we were just talking about. I'm talking about the 70s. I was there, and I remember what that was like. And even then, a lot of us were going, what? You know, what are you talking about? Black women don't know how to raise kids. Okay, you know, sure, that makes sense. I mean, this this has been, he's he's stuck, and, and he doesn't seem to be able to get unstuck. This is an issue that has been dogging him from the very beginning of this campaign. Yep. It continues, and he digs a hole in it every single time. Now, right now, African Americans are supporting him in in a large in large numbers. But I'm telling you, if you want to do something to sabotage your campaign, you'll start insulting black women. Exactly. You know, <laughs> and, I mean, hey, black, black women, women are I'm the, the tell heart you. and soul of the Democratic right. Party. They are the backbone uh-huh. of the Absolutely. electorate, and they so far have been with him. But I would not guarantee with things like that 
that they're going to stay with him because that was just downright insulting. I'm it, sorry. It, it just was, was. horrible. And he doesn't know it, but it was. It, no, and he needs to know it. And, and I, I mean, how, how uh, the pundits could come on afterwards and not say that was a potential game changer right there. He stepped in it big time. Well, the and, pundit- and he doesn't know that he did. The pundits who come on after these things are all, you know, the waxworks creatures of the Beltway who are all, you know, in their uh, mostly white, mostly in their 60s and above and mostly remember fondly the Patrick Moynihan days. And I want to see a panel of six millennials up there um, of every shape and size uh, tearing the stuff apart. That's what I really want to see. I, I think we can all thank our lucky stars that Joe didn't say Edison wax cylinders. So, you know, <laughs> let's, let's, let's give credit for that. Um, and, and there is a, a rich and vital conversation to be had about single working parent families yep. needing lots of support for the, the, on the job of raising children. They, they need to have a better public broadcasting system that is available to the children. They need to have better schools. They need to have higher paid teachers. They need to have more recent books in their lives. There's lots of conversation to be had around what to do about the fact that people who have to work for a living and have one parent in their home or two parents working for jobs have have, have had to sacrifice uh, a lot of the things that you and I had when we were kids. Sure. And that there is a wonderful democratic argument to be made that Bernie Sanders would be great at making and Elizabeth Warren's great at making for giving those people the support they need to have a healthy, happy family and raise productive children, like making sure that when those kids enter college, they don't go broke, uh, mm-hmm. spend the rest of their lives paying off debt. That's a great conversation. That is not the conversation that Joe Biden was having at all, no. which is, again, he completely missed the mark. He doesn't. He does not live in the same century as anyone else. Right. And that is deeply problematic. And and the thing is, you know, Bernie Sanders is older than Joe Biden, but he yeah. comes across as younger and sorry, more with it and more uh, able to keep keep up with the rigors of the road, although last night he didn't look as as great as he usually does, which we already addressed. Um I have one more thing that I, that I want to ask both of you guys, because, look, Brad Friedman is a journalist. He doesn't make endorsements. He doesn't get behind a candidate. I do things a little bit differently. I'm a talk show host with opinions, and I do. I, and I've made no secret of the fact that my two top choices right now are Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And sadly, what I'm seeing is, I'm sure there's some troll and bot activity in there, but I'm seeing a lot of... Bernie Sanders supporters going after the jugular for Elizabeth Warren and over health care. And they're parsing her words and they're saying she's not really for Medicare for all. She's shown that. She's proven it. She's a ruse. She's a shill. Uh, she's, she's trying to just, uh, you know, ride his coattails. Well, I thought last night Elizabeth Warren was pretty damn clear on where she stands. I thought, uh, you know, her takedown of the for-profit insurance industry was pretty clear, like what she said here. Let's be clear about this. People will have access to all of their doctors, all of their nurses, their community hospitals, their rural hospitals. Doctors won't have to hire people to fill out crazy forms. They won't have to spend time on the phone arguing with insurance companies. People who have sick family members won't have to get into these battles. What this is about is making sure that we have the most efficient way possible to pay for health care for everyone in this country. Insurance companies last year sucked $23 billion in profits out of the system. How did they make that money? Every one of those $23 billion was made by an insurance company saying no to your health care coverage. Mayor Buttigieg. I, I thought she was pretty clear there that her plan will do away with the for-profit insurance industry. Um, Digby, am I getting something wrong? Am I missing anything? No, I think it's obvious that she's for Medicare for all. And I I suspect, I don't know this, but I I suspect meddling, you know, Uh by by outside actors in a lot of this Twitter stuff. And I'm basically turning it off. I, I, if I see that sort of thing between, you know, between Warren and Sanders, I just, I'm going, I'm just going to choose to believe that this is uh, <laughs> some kind of outside actor because it makes no sense. No, uh, to I, I'll, do I'll that. tell Both you what of the- them 
there, uh, there, there's no reason. There's no reason for it. And her her explanation there was fine. She also did another thing, which I thought was is important. They keep trying to trap her and Sanders into saying that everybody's taxes are going to go, go up. up. Right. They're playing into a right wing frame that any that raising taxes specifically, just that particular form of payment is absolutely anathema and everybody will go crazy. And they, yes. and they keep trying to get her to say, well, yes, your taxes will go up, but your premiums will go down, which they apparently believe is a killer sort of argument against Medicare for all. And, and Warren has been very, very clear over and over again. She will not take the bait. She goes, what people care about is cost. Yep. What people care about is what costs they have for healthcare, and then she goes on to, you know, talk about what she's doing, and I think that's smart. I mean, she could get into a big argument over this; it could happen. But I don't think it's smart I, to do that. I think the best thing to do is do exactly what she's saying: let that penetrate. It's cost. It's cost. It's cost. People will get that, and it's important to do that because people's taxes will go up, yep. but their overall costs will go down. They but that's a hard argument payments. to make in this right. environment of because course. taxes are considered, you know, the devil's work or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. But if they're, they're what they're trying to do is get across the point that basically instead you won't pay your your premiums and deductibles. Exactly. I mean, look, everybody I know is on the hook for, however, a thousand dollars a month in a premium and then a six thousand dollar deductible before the insurance company pays one cent. Sure. I'd rather pay an extra five thousand dollars a year in taxes and have everything covered. And that's the point they're trying to make. Um, uh, and I thought she, the, the problem that the and, and I, I pushed back against Bernie Bros last time, but what I'm seeing in my Twitter feed, especially, is really disturbing. I know some of them are are, are nonsense, but some of them are people that I've interacted with over the years. Um, their their problem with that clip I just played is the word access. They are parsing every syllable that she says and trying to put their you know fears onto it. And she's talking about access. I have access to healthcare. I just can't afford it. They need to cut it out because what I fear is this is they're playing into the hands of the DNC who would like to see nothing more than for the two progressive candidates to eat their own and clear the way for Biden or Buttigieg or another of the so-called centrists. Uh, Well, I just assume that outside with Digby on this, I assume uh there's a lot of outside agitators being run by Ed Rendell. That's Uh my theory uh at the moment. Uh And and that he's he's going to use his Ed Rendell magic to. Uh, harness all the bots that he can find and fire them at Elizabeth Warren because they're afraid of her. Yeah, She's a genuine threat. She looks like a credible presidential candidate and has since day one. And that is a terrifying thought to a whole bunch of people who would rather not have her on the ballot in any way, size, shape, or form. Um, I, I would like her to say the next time George Stephanopoulos levels that question at her to say, yes, George, I'm going to raise your taxes. <laughs> yes. I'm going to tax all the pomade out of your hair. I'm going to tax <laughs> you right out of your $10,000 suit. Yes, George, you're going to be taxed back to the Stone Age. Everyone else, net net is going to actually make money on the deal because whatever we take in taxes, we're going to give back and then some in premium relief. But you, George, you personally, I'm going to see you in the poorhouse. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Uh, yeah, I don't think that'll happen. Uh, no, you don't think so? Well, no. And, and the point about Castro per potentially being her attack dog is a good one because she's the only one really <clears throat> who she just wouldn't take the bait. Anytime she was asked a question where she could have gone after one of her opponents, she made it about her policies, her plans, what she believes. And she's taking the high road. And I expect nothing, nothing less from her. Well, and you can well ex- exactly, and you know what she she does go after Donald Trump, which I'm yes, happy to see. Absolutely, it didn't happen so much last night with any of them, but yeah. um, she does go after Donald Trump. But she doesn't do that. You look, she's taking on the mantle of a happy warrior, right? She's yep. saying, "I'm out here. I'm in the fight. I'm here every day. This is my calling. I am happy to be here to fight on your behalf." And that's very appealing. I think it's one of the reasons why she's risen. Is this great energy toward all of this? It, it, as the contrast to Donald Trump, who is an ugly, angry demagogue. And, it, you know, it's like they're two polar opposites in every way, from their level of intelligence to their reason for being in politics to the way that they approach it. I mean, you, if, it, if you look at the two of them, you just, you know, and obviously she's a woman and he's a misogynist pig, <laughs> um, you know, but the, 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 the two of them uh, up against each other, it is a stark stark vision of the division in this country. It says it all just right there. Yeah. 
it's very clarifying. I mean, this really is who we are. One of these two. This is, you know, I think so. uh, we will all become all one thing or all the other rip off from Lincoln. And I, I know which one I want. I, I would very mm-hmm. much like a candidate to at some point pivot again to say, it's odd how you guys get really obsessed with taxes every time the Republican Party has wrecked the economy. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's it's weird because oh, after yeah. Bush and 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 uh, Reagan ran up deficits, you didn't care about that. But the minute someone tried to pay it down, he said, oh, no, don't talk about taxes. When George Bush destroyed the global economy and lied us into the wrong war and burned through the surplus, you didn't care about that. The minute Democrats come on the stage to clean up your mess, then you get obsessed with taxes. Why is that, George? Why is it that the <laughs> only time you people ever talk about taxes is when we're trying to pay off a debt incurred by the Republican Party that you never cared about until now? That's, that is a legitimate and I think conversation diverting thing that I, I could hear that. I could hear Pete Buttigieg saying that mm. because that's a really interesting question to me is why is it you people in the media never ask this stuff of Republicans yeah. ever? Why don't you care? Why is it the deficit creating party never gets a single question about how you're going to pay for anything? Right. Because there are the fiscal conservatives, don't you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're on a roll now. So stick around. We'll be right back to wrap things up. I'm Nicole Sandler, along with Driftglass and Digby, in for Brad Friedman on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. It's Nicole Sandler in today for Brad Friedman on the broadcast, and I hate that this discussion is coming to an end, but we're getting near the end of the hour, so Digby, any any closing shots here? Uh, well, you know, I just... Uh, you know, I guess we, we've hit the, the highlights of the of the debate. I, I do just, you know, want to sort of reiterate that I'm I'm very nervous about the idea of having to spend the next year making excuses for for Joe Biden and uh-huh. watching a uh, campaign between these two people, uh. Biden and, mm. and Trump. It Can't absolutely happen. sends a pit into my stomach because I think I, we can predict what that's going to be like, right? Okay. I mean, it's going to be yep. ugly anyway. Yep. Uh, we know this campaign is going to be absolutely horrible because Trump is... He's desperate. Uh, you know, he, he could be facing legal you know consequences for his criminality, if he doesn't win, and I think he knows that, um, and it, it, it's just in his nature. Uh, he is just salivating at the idea of just being an, an absolute vicious attack attacker uh, on whoever emerges as the as the um, as his opponent. But you know, if it's Joe Biden, you know, I mean, what are we going to be doing here? I mean, how hard is it going to be? You know, there used to be a thing called Clinton fatigue, and it was yeah. a real thing yeah. for Bill Clinton, and then I think it it, it attached to Hillary as well. Where, um, you know, people were just going, you know, look, I get it. The other side is totally unfair. It's just disgusting what they're doing to her and him. And I can't stand it anymore. But God, I'm so tired of this. You know, can't we just, you know, get past it somehow? I have a feeling that's where we're going to be with Joe Biden. If he gets the nomination, it'll be within a month <laughs> of the convention. Yeah. Oh, God. If that happens, because it's going to be so bad. It's, know, it's going to so be horrible. And, and so I implore the progressives, please, we, you know, whether you like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, we'd be well served with either one of them as president. And the last thing we need to do is have a division between the two of us, because that will open the door for Joe Biden, in which case, I'm sorry, we lose. And, uh, you know, I sa- I've, I've been saying, then we get another four years of Donald Trump. But frankly and honestly, I don't think we would survive another four years of Donald Trump. So yeah, I agree. Our, our, the survival of this nation and perhaps even the planet 
<laughs> not to be too alarmist here, depends on the outcome of this election. We cannot turn it over to Joe Biden. I- I'm sorry, but we just cannot. My, my thoughts. Anyway, uh, Drift Glass, find him again at driftglass.blogspot.com and the Professional Left blog, uh, the professional left podcast, along with Blue Gal Fran, uh, that comes out on Fridays, right, Drift Glass? Uh, yes, indeed, it does. In fact, as soon as we're done talking here, I'm going to take all of your good ideas and steal <laughs> them and make them into a podcast. Awesome. We'll be listening. And Digby, of course, at digbysblog.blogspot.com and salon.com and, uh, and on my show today as well. Uh, thank you both of you guys. And I know Brad sends his thanks as well uh, for a great recap of what happened at the third Democratic debate. Much appreciation to both of you. Thank you. My pleasure. And with that, we reach the end of another edition of the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com. And I thank you so much for being with me. Hopefully, Brad and Desi will be back soon, but we'll hold down the fort for them until they get back. Thanks for listening, everyone. And as Brad always says, good luck, world. <laughs>